0: WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston radio veteran Ken Meyer. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of City Talk. And tonight we're going to talk about and with a sports icon. The icon we're going to talk about is a man called the splendid splinter, Ted Williams, and the sports icon, that is here to do that is a gentleman named Lee Montville, whom we spoke about a few weeks ago regarding the 1969 Boston Celtics. And I thought it appropriate to bring him back to discuss Ted Williams. So, Lee, nice to have you back again. Nice to be back, Ted. Um, I guess we should owe a guy named Eddie Collins um, a lot of thanks because he had a lot to do with. Ted Williams getting to Boston.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Um I should I should preface everything by by saying I just looked it up. I wrote this book 17 years ago. Um which it was published 17 years ago, so that meant I I, I wrote it like 18 and 19 years ago. And uh I might be a little murky on some of the facts here and there because uh I haven't read it much since then. Um, although it stands up very well because Ted hasn't been going anywhere in these past <laughs> 17, 18 or 19 years it, in the middle of the book is when he it is, is when I was writing the book in the middle of it is, is when he died and, and all the weird stuff happened. And he, he wound up, uh, you know, being in a freezer in Scottsdale, Arizona, his body. Uh, but anyway, sure. Eddie Collins was 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 very big. He he he's he's the one that uh, that romanced Ted to into a Red Sox contract and uh, got it all started.
0: And Ted is from San Diego and started his journey through the minor leagues, but and I get the impression that a lot of people thought or at least you did that he could have been in Boston sooner. After his uh, trip to Minnesota on his way up to the big leagues
1: oh yeah he he was sort of an irascible guy right from the beginning and he he always had uh, tons and tons of self-confidence I mean he he went right he went right from high school he was still in high school when he started playing in the the, the, the Pacific Coast League for, San, uh, for for San Diego and and uh, he, he just he always could hit. He, from the start, his 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 mantra was that I I, I want to be the greatest hitter who ever lived. I want people to say that when I walk down the street, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. And he was possessed by by hitting. You know, he he was always swinging a bat. He was swinging anything. You know, he would walking home from school. He, he would have a stick and swing it at at, at flowers that were grown in people's gardens and he'd whack them out of the way. And he, uh, he, he just studied and studied about hitting. And when he got, when he came, he thought he would go straight to the Red Sox. And when they sent him down to, to Minneapolis, basically to try and get some control over him, he, he was just a a chattery chattery guy and, and maniacal, uh, almost, you know, he, he, he would eat like four meals a day because he wanted to get bigger and stronger and uh, and hit more home runs.
0: And he came up uh, in 1939. Uh, Joe Cronin, uh, who uh, is in the Baseball Hall of Fame and former president of the American League, or sport, as Ted, Ted used to call him, was uh, his manager at the time. How would he get along with Joe Cronin?
1: Well, uh, all of his managers, he, he, he played hard and, and, and he, he got along pretty well. He, he, his, his problems were with the, with the press. You know, he got along very well with umpires. His problems uh, just began with the press. They began very early. And uh, he was a guy that always, always wanted to think that he was in, in a tough relationship, that there were people who said, that he couldn't do what he was supposed to do. He would hear the negative and he would feed on that and say, well, I'll show them those blankety blankety blanks. And <laughs> so it, it was easy to do that with the press. He, he, he started a bunch of, I don't know, controversies and, and followed them through, through his whole, his whole career fighting back and forth with the press, but it, but he got along well with his managers. he, he, he he, he played hard, and uh, and what 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 would there be that they didn't like because he, he was a solid solid hitter.
0: All right, um, but also to be fair to Ted Williams, he got blamed for a lot of stuff that he shouldn't have. Um, some of the press people wrote about his relationship with his mother, who I guess he kind of had an up and down life with. Uh, he was criticized when. Some of his kids were born and he was not there for their births because some were premature and came earlier than expected. And he was kind of treated unfairly for stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, 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 he was far and away the biggest celebrity in Boston. You know, I mean, Boston, we, we like to think we're a, a very cosmopolitan city and, you know, sort of a miniature New York. But, but, but we're like a lot of cities around the country, you know, our, our most noticeable people are our athletes. And uh, and nowadays, like uh, the people that do the local TV news and stuff like that. Uh, and and he was far and away Boston's really first big superstar. And uh, attention was made Uh People would just write about him and write about him and write about him. Everything he did, every nuance of his life, they would look at. And uh, he was a guy that, that kind of was so outspoken. And, and he did things that just upset people. You know, I mean, you can argue about whether he should have been up here for the birth of his childhood. You know, any reasonable person would say, well, yeah, he should have been up here. You know, if his wife was pregnant and ready to give birth, uh, he shouldn't be in Florida fishing. Uh, and his mother, he, he, he didn't go out to see his mother. You know, I mean, the, for two years, he, he didn't go out to see his mother. And uh, when he was a young unmarried guy uh, and and they took up on that. He he was he was like, the first, I would say, the first athlete in Boston where his personal life became the fodder of, uh, of newspaper coverage, you know, sports coverage. It, it, people today say, well, now they cover, they cover everything, personal lives of the players and everything. Well, they were covering the personal lives of this guy way back when.
0: Well, one thing that I had completely forgotten until I read this book. Ted had a brother,
1: yeah he had a younger brother danny who uh who kind of got in some trouble and and kind of led a, a a troubled life they they had a an interesting uh an interesting upbringing ted and danny they, they 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 were the only two kids of of his mom and dad and his his dad was was kind of away from the house much of the time uh and and really wasn't a factor in their lives. And his mother uh, was enamored of the Salvation Army. She she worked for the Salvation Army and she spent her time doing things for the Salvation Army. She would go down to, uh, go, go across the border from San Diego into Tijuana and uh, go into the bar rooms and, and preach the gospel. Uh, and she was forever, I don't know, She was uh, she was walking the streets with signboards and stuff, uh, professing for the the Salvation Army. In the meantime, her kids were kind of left. They were latchkey kids and they had to figure out their own lives. And the life that Ted figured out was the baseball life. You know, Uh, he was encouraged by all his coaches because he was a very good player. And uh, he, he just dove right into that. Whereas Danny, who, who wasn't the athlete that Ted was, kind of dove into the darker sides of life and, you know, was was sort of what we would call then a juvenile delinquent. You know, he was uh, he, he was the guy on the other side of the tracks. One of the things
0: that you do in this book, and I love it, uh, is go through the 1941 season, because not only was it the last time that anyone would hit. 400. Uh, That was Joe DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak. uh, The momentous World Series uh, with the Yankees and the Dodgers. Uh, And Bob Creamer, who was a friend of mine and whom you mentioned in this book,
1: wrote a whole book on just that season. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it it was like the, the last season before the war, before the war just disrupted everything. And it was sort of a golden baseball season, uh, for, for in a lot of respects, mostly with Williams and DiMaggio. And Williams was just a terror for the whole season. He, he, he was just hitting, hitting, hitting. And, and when it got down to the final, the, the, the final day, which was a doubleheader uh, against the Philadelphia athletics, uh, he could have sat out and made sure that he hit four hundred because he was three ninety-nine point whatever it was that would be rounded off to four hundred. But he went ahead and played and, and uh I don't know, he was something like five for eight, five for twelve, something like that. But he, he wound up at four oh six. And I, I remember talking to Ted about that, and much has been made about how courageous it was for him to uh you know, courageous is a word that we throw around easily in sports, I guess, but courageous of them to, to, to go out there and, uh, and, and play in those two games in the doubleheader, And, and the two games are the the athletics were going nowhere and they had like rookie pitchers coming up. And, and, and for both games, they had rookie pitchers starting and Ted didn't know either of them. And Ted, hated when he played against rookie pitchers because he hadn't had time to psych them out. Uh, he, He always, he always did better against pitchers. The more he had seen, the more he could figure out how they operated and what they did. So it was kind of a challenge right there, but Ted went ahead and did it anyway. And when I talked to him, you know, a million years later, and I said, that was pretty, there's something great that you did and momentous. And he said, you know, it it didn't seem momentous at all. He said, people had hit 400, you know, quite regularly up till then. And he said, who knew that it would be the last time someone would would hit 400? And I I had no idea how important it would be. And if I did, I would have thought long and hard about sitting out. But I I just decided to go ahead and play. How did he get
0: along with uh ex ball players at that time. I know in a in a book that I read Ty Cobb didn't care for the brand of baseball that was occurring and didn't like what ball players were doing. But how did Ted get along with people like him and Babe Ruth and other guys of that era that had recently retired before he came up?
1: Yeah, I, I think he got along fine with them. Uh, my favorite story in the in the whole book is when Ted Ted is in his final season with the Red Sox and they're training out in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, a guy, Joe, I forget his last name, for a, a, a guy who owns a bar and restaurant in, in Rhode Island had become Ted's, Ted's friend and would go down for spring training or out for spring training with him and kind of cook his meals and drive him around and everything. And so... He's there with Ted one day and Ted says, come on, let's take a ride. And they take a ride and they, they go to the outskirts of Scottsdale and there's a, 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 an old beat-up motel there. And they go to, say, room number five, an old beat-up door and everything. And they knock. And, and this old guy comes answers the door and he's, he's got on a bathrobe and slippers. And Ted says, Joe, say hello to say hello to Ty Cobb and, and the old guy was Ty Cobb and they went in the room and they, they, they had a couple of beers and they they talked and Ted and Ty Cobb got into a big argument over hitting because Ted was always a, a believer that you swing up at the ball you know that's that's the trend now they they they, they talk about launch angles and things like that but Ted had a launch angle, and Babe Ruth had the same launch angle, swinging up at the ball to try and hit a uh, to, 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 to try and hit a a, a a fly ball that will go over the fence and be a home run and and you know instant scoring. Whereas Ty Cobb was from an era where you hit down on the ball and and whack it through and and get base hits and base hits and steal bases and and play that kind of kind of a baseball game. And that's still a debate, you know, the launch angle and which way you should do things. Although swinging up at the ball seems to have taken the thing. So anyway, they're arguing back and forth and, and they're both loud and combative men. And, and uh, Ted is saying you have to swing up and Ty is saying you have to swing down. And Ted says, well, let's settle this right now. And he turns and he says, Joe, which do you think? Do you think you should swing up or swing down? And Joe was like floored that, you know, here were like the two greatest hitters ever. And he was supposed to be the deciding vote, you know, a, a bartender restaurant owner from Rhode Island. It's kind of funny. But Ted got along with old ballplayers fine. As long as they didn't say anything bad about Ted. All
0: right. Um, World War II ends. 1946 begins. The were Sox. Red Sox had an incredible season that year.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was the one real, it, it, it wound up with the one World Series that Ted Williams ever played in. Um, and the whole team was good. They, they put it together. They, 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 they were smart when they put it together. the team back together after the war. And this was just a, a veteran, good, solid team. And they got to the World Series, and they were going to play the St. Louis Cardinals. And the Red Sox had been so good that um, that 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 they clinched the pennant. And then they had to wait because the Cardinals were in a a, a, a three game playoff to, to to decide who who would go into the World Series. And the Red Sox had time to kill, and they they put together a bunch of all-star players from around, from around the American League to come in and play, play some exhibition games against the Red Sox just to keep them sharp. Joe DiMaggio was one of the, the players that came in. And in one of the exhibition games, uh, Ted got hurt. And, uh, and, and, and it soured the way he played for the whole World Series. He didn't play well at all and his numbers, I forget what his numbers were, but he, you know, he he hit in the two hundreds and didn't hit for power. And and it was his biggest disappointment of his life and all the knockers, the people who who didn't like Ted forever had, had the stats from, from that world series to say that Ted couldn't perform when the the chips were down.
0: I would say Ted's biggest enemy among the, as he referred to them, Knights of the Keyboard, was a man they called the Colonel. Yeah,
1: there's, there, there, there was a writer for the, the record American, Dave Egan, who um, was a Harvard guy and a bright guy and 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 a heavy drinker. And uh, he, 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 he was very facile in the way he wrote. And... Uh, he, he, He he was he was like the biggest sports writer in Boston, and he realized early on that knocking Ted was an easy way to travel. And uh, he he would he would find things wrong with Ted as, as often as he could. You know, if he was stuck for a column, he would start writing about Ted and he never talked to Ted. He never went to the locker room to talk to Ted or anything. He just did this off the top of his head and created all these situations. And, uh, and he more than anybody was responsible for the tone of, of the way Ted's Ted's career here went in Boston.
0: We are talking with Lee Montville, well-known and prolific sports writer about probably the greatest hitter that ever lived Ted Williams after the 46 season. Joe McCarthy was hired to manage the Red Sox. That when you look back at history, that that's a complete surprise.
1: Well, yeah, Joe McCarthy had retired and, and you know was, was gonna be out of the game, and, and the Red Sox brought him back. They did that later on with Ralph Houk, you know, another Yankees manager. I mean, Joe McCarthy yep. had 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 managed Babe Ruth and you know, had managed. To, Champions, and they they thought that somehow Joe could bring that to the Red Sox, uh, and and they they always had good teams, but but they were always short of the Yankees. Yeah, and of and, course, and, yeah. I mean, when I was doing the book, I, I went to see Dominic DiMaggio, and he talked about how how the Yankees had the mindset of of a business. They ran the thing as a business. And and they always made business decisions, and, and when they put their roster together, whereas the Red Sox were, were owned by Tom Yawkey, and he ran it as like um, like a hobby, like his club, and he had favorites that he kept, and and, and people that he didn't like, he he, he got rid of, and uh, and and they they walked a narrow thing of of. Uh, who they wanted to have on the team. It was like an old men's club. Dominic DiMaggio said, uh, they didn't like anybody, you know, I mean, they didn't like, they certainly didn't like African-Americans, but they didn't like Italians. They didn't like, they didn't like anybody. And, and, uh, and that was the major failing of the Red Sox at that time.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate too. I mean, we could get into a whole big thing about, uh, Jackie Robinson and, um, the fact that they didn't bring anybody up until like 1959.
1: And when they did, it was Pumpsy Green. Yeah. Who who wasn't a great player either. You know, it was almost, <laughs> someone once said they brought up Pumpsy Green to say, see, look at this. You, you know, we were right all along. This guy couldn't play. Um, so it, it, it was tough management. i I've been very much on the side of the the, the anti uh in history.
0: How did Ted get along with Yaki? They didn't have too many battles, as I recall.
1: No, they got along fine. You know, Yorkie, uh yaki loved Ted. You know, he, in in a lot of ways, he treated Ted like like you know like like he was almost his son. You know, and he would he would come out and he would play Pepper and. and and be around and and you no, know, he liked Ted a lot. I think he, he idolized Ted and uh and and he paid him well and uh he was very much a, a Ted Williams fan.
0: I can't get it out of my head that Ted missed five years of baseball because of World War II and the Korean War and what might have been if he had played five years more with the Red Sox instead of going off to war
1: yeah I mean that's always a, a question <clears throat> but one thing is that he wound up playing a lot longer than I think he would have if if he um, if he hadn't gone away for those five years you know I mean he, he played into his 40s and and which nobody did at that time and 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 he he had longevity that that probably was sustained at least a little bit by by not playing for those five years,
0: but he but he also played with a lot of injuries. He had a lot of colds, as I recall. He had trouble with his respiratory system and uh, hurt his collarbone, uh, and, and still managed to play ball.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he liked it and was very proud of it, and uh, it it was. Yeah, I mean, he he battled through everything, and he did have colds for his entire career. He was always he he was always having bronchial problems, uh, and I don't know. His military career was very interesting. I think you know he, he he's become like the personification of the American citizen soldier. You know because he was he was involved in two wars and all of that but he, he he didn't want to go to either of those wars i mean he he wasn't the first one to volunteer he tried to stay out of the the out of world war 2 um, and and used used his mother he was the chief support of his mother who he hadn't seen in two years and all of that and and he initially he was seen as sort of a sort of a draft dodger kind of guy until he finally he joined the U.S. Navy and ultimately the Marine Corps as a pilot. Um, and, and during the Second World War, he he, he never left Florida. He, he went down there and he trained as a, a pilot, and he just stayed there as a training pilot. So he, he never saw combat action in World War II. And then uh, at, at the end of the war, he... If if you wanted to, if you wanted to get out of the service and you were a pilot, you, you, and you still had time left on your enlistment, the only way you could do it was to sign off and say, I'm I'm going to be in, in the, in the, the ready reserves or the, you just put your name on it. I suppose it was going to be a big list of names and they put them in a file cabinet and forget them. And so he put his name on the list and, uh. And he went back to playing baseball and the Korean War came up and the Marines had like no pilots. And uh, that's how, how he wound up getting called back for the Korean War. And he, he fought that all along. He didn't want to do that either. And uh, it, it's just interesting the way he's he's become, I don't know, the personification of, of the the American citizen soldier. And he, he was fighting it both times. to going back to service, to the service.
0: Now, I gather, too, from reading this book, that that Ted had a rough time with the fans until a certain incident occurred. I'm guessing 1956. He actually spit at the fans and was fined, and, and the fans offered to pay it, and they never collected it. And his attitude changed toward the fans after that.
1: Yeah, he he, like I said, he he could hear that one bad voice, you know, he could hear he he could hear anything negative that was said to him. And being out in in left field at Fenway, you're really close to the stands and and people could yell things. And I my first thought when they when they opened the the monster seats, I went to do a story for Sports Illustrated about the monster seats and these new seats, which kind of have you hanging right over the left fielder and and i just said to myself ted would have killed himself if, if he was playing in front of these monster seats he would hear people whisper and saying you know that ted williams he's no good and he would hear it and and he would have just been crazy and uh, he, he was just bothered by anything negative that was said and so when he, he came off the field and 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 he was getting ragged and and, and he, he spit towards the fans, he spit towards the press box, he spit all around. And uh, it became a big, big incident. They had pictures of him spitting, you know, the spit caught in midair and the whole deal. And the, the fans kind of showed their love to him. And, and, and he sort of realized, I guess, that the majority of the people were all for him and were behind him. and. It's interesting with the press, but the the day he was done as a ball player, he just became a a fabulous guy with the press. He would still say things, but he would say them in a a joking way instead of a a nasty way. He he became a a really good interview. I mean, when I came along and he'd be in spring training, he was a great guy to talk to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And let's talk about some of those later years. The thing that's always strikes me as unbelievable. He won a batting title in 1957 with a 388 batting average.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, 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 he was phenomenal. I mean, if he was still alive and he, and he'd be 102 now, I, I think he could have, he could have come out and got a base hit. You know, he, he just had, he had the game figured out. He had a he, he had a great mind for the game. The things they're doing now, you know, analytics, they say analytics all the time, you know, figuring out this and and tendencies and all of that. Ted had all those things figured out in his mind. He had a computer mind that that knew where the, the pitcher liked to pitch the ball, where he didn't like to pitch the ball. He knew what count to wait for the pitch. He would go out. And he would watch the pitcher warm up, you know. They they used to warm up right next to the dugouts. And he he would go out and stand there to right next watching the pitcher, seeing what what the guy was throwing. He, he just knew everything. He knew he knew how umpires called games. He he had all the information in, in his head that they have now. You see him looking at the tablets before a guy goes up to bat. The tablet was inside. Ted Williams' head.
0: 1959, it seems, was a bad year for all the superstars, including Ted. Uh, Mickey Mantle didn't have a very good year. Stan Musial didn't have a very good year. The only ones that had a very good year that were uh, were really super were the Chicago White Sox and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And and Ted almost retired, but decided to play one more year. And also wanted to take a cut in the salary
1: yeah I mean that's that's pretty much unheard of isn't it that you yeah,
0: that, yeah that your, sure superstar,
1: is. your superstar says uh, says, says, says I, I want to take this so he, he was just an interesting guy that way um, and and he came back you know he, he came back because a, a, a guy had talked to him about all the numbers and the, the different different statistical um, marks he could make and and where he could put himself in in the rankings of all-time players. And he had that in mind when he came back and he wanted to play the way he could and he wanted to play with dignity, and he did. He came back and played well.
0: And, of course, did something that is legendary now. Um, Hit a home run in his last time at bat. Off a guy named Jack Fisher of the Baltimore Orioles. Just out of curiosity, were you one of those people in Fenway Park at that time on that oh, day?
1: No. no, no, I was. I, I was in high school in New Haven, Connecticut, um, oh. and uh, so no, I wasn't there at all. Um, but even even that's <laughs> that's an interesting thing, you know. John Updike made that a that that famous the famous story about. Uh, the kid bids hubbadoo and, yep. and made it such a big thing but they still had three more games in New York and, and his stuff had been packed to go to New York and so what was he but he didn't go he that was it he, he, he walked off the stage right there after he hit the home run which was a dramatic and fine, fine ending but what if he hadn't hit the home run, was he going to go to New York and play three more games and see if he hit a home run there? Or, uh, who knows? You know, it was, yeah. it was all, all up in doubt, but, but for sure it was, it was a magical thing that he hit the home run and has and and Updike's story probably has kept that alive more than anything. You know, that, that, that it's almost like Robert Frost wrote a poem about, uh, about something that you did it's uh it, it's it's quite a a literary feat as well as as a physical feat well i love how in the chapter
0: you combine updike's, updike's article as well as one that was written by ed lynn who is another very famous sports writer and who wrote a book about ted as well
1: yeah it, i mean it in my mind, I actually like Ed Lynn's story better because Ed Lynn was a a sort of a, a working sports writer and had a great eye for detail. And he, he had the whole thing about Ted's bag was packed to go to to, to 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 go on to New York. And he 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 had all the little bits and pieces that, that were actual facts, whereas whereas uh, Updike was was, you know, poetic and comparing him to to Greek gods and things like that uh, and i I've always been more of a literal kind of guy yeah he uh, he also
0: wrote a couple of books with bill veck and did a real good job i thought
1: oh yeah no, ed, ed Lynn was a wonder he, he was a great writer um you know veck is in wreck and and the the other one the, about his uh, about his time at at suffolk downs or I mean, that, those were great books. They were terrific to read.
0: Yeah, there was another one, too, called The Hustler's Handbook. Uh, okay. That he helped write. And I love the title of the, the book that he helped him write on Suffolk Downs: 30 Tons a Day. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's yeah, that a great was about, title. That was about all the, all the manure that, that they took away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right.
0: Ted Williams retires, 1960. He eventually took a job with the Washington Senators and I'm going to ask you about a guy named Russ white in a little while. But before that, talk about what kind of retirement Ted had. He was pretty active. Thanks to Sears Roebuck
1: and others. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he got a job with Sears Roebuck to paid him more than he was making with the Red Sox. Um, and he, he was, he, he was the head of their sports operation. I mean, uh, he was a big endorser there were Ted Williams model fishing rods and 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 baseball gloves and everything and he 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 liked that. he, he liked he liked it because he was also the the big fisherman you know he he fished up up in the, up in New Brunswick he fished down in Florida by his home and he he was just he was an outdoors man you know uh, of the first order. Uh, retri- retirement was made for him because he, he he was a guy with interests. Tell me about Russ White. Um, let me see. The seventeen-year thing is coming kicking in here. I mean, Russ White was a sports writer down there and uh, and covered the, the the Washington Senators and uh, oh yeah and. and he had the scoop right about about Ted about Ted becoming the manager, didn't he?
0: Yep. Yep. Bob Short, who was the owner of the team, uh wanted a new manager and uh he picked and was able to convince Ted Williams uh to manage the team and he was there from 69 through 72, but he only had one real good year and that was 69.
1: Yeah. I mean, he he came very came in very interested in in doing it, but he he lost lost interest in the day to day thing. He he had a guy Joe Camacho from from New Bedford who uh, who who was a minor league a minor league kind of coach and manager guy. He made him the first bench coach in the in the in major league history that no manager ever had a bench coach before, but Ted hired Joe Camacho to, to make all the decisions, you know, and, and what the strategy would be and what would be going on. And I mean, Ted's whole thing was hitting. Oh, that's all he cared about. Um, Joe Camacho said that he and Nellie Fox, who was another coach they were arguing over and trying to figure out what to do on a double play, how they would work it, you know, with the shortstop positioning against the, the, the second baseman and going back and forth and back and forth. And Ted listened to us and said, let's just go hit. Let's have people hitting, you know, <laughs> and it, it was all about hitting. And uh, I think he learned very early on that, 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 you know, his greatness as, as a hitter really couldn't be shared with other people because they didn't have the same reactions. They didn't have the same dedication. They didn't have a whole lot of the same. So that's the way it's been with, with a lot of great athletes that that they really can't tell other people what to do because they they've worked their own way and, and figured it out their own way and had their own particular talents. And it doesn't translate to the rest of us. You know, I mean, Ted could talk to, could talk to me for, you know, for 150 years. And I, I could never hit a major league fastball. And uh, and I think that was the play. He, he would talk, guys would say, would get up at the at the plate and Ted, Ted would say, you, you know, you have to wait till you get a good pitch to hit. You have to work against the pitcher, his strikes and, and, you know, force him into a count, a hitter's count, you know, um, three and one or something like that, three and two where the the pitcher had to had to come in with a certain pitch in a certain place and then just smack it away. And Ted would sit in the dugout and the guy would be up and the, the pitch would come and, and, and Ted would scream, you know, that's the pitch. And the guy would foul it off or something. And Ted would get all mad because he, he didn't hit it for a single or a home run or something. He, he had complications teaching what he knew is, I guess, the final judgment there. Well, I'm also willing to bet
0: that if Ted knew what was ahead of him after the 69 season, like they're getting Denny McLean and making trades that, that Ted did not approve of and the fact that they moved out of Washington and moved to Texas,
1: he might not have stayed that long. Yeah, no, he... he uh, the whole Washington. I mean, when they moved to Texas, he he just his interest in the whole thing just disappeared. He, he he just kind of stumbled through that season, and at the end of the season, he he was gone. He you know he 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 had an old he had a, a, an old uh, station wagon with a bumper sticker. You know, if uh, if guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. He had the bumper sticker on the. The old station wagon, he, he just drove back to Florida and went back to fishing.
0: All right. Uh, let's jump ahead a little bit, or quite a bit, actually. I didn't know until I read it in your book. The 1999 All-Star Game was at Fenway Park. And one yeah. of the big highlights there it was the all-century team. Ted Williams was there, and everybody crowded around him and everything like that. It wasn't supposed to be at Fenway Park. Uh, there was something about a, a, con, a construction crew and Miller Park wasn't ready. It was supposed oh, okay. to be there. And, uh, and yeah. so they had it at Fenway
1: instead. Oh, okay. Sure. Okay. See, see these details have been lost in the 19 years. <laughs> to, you're, you're more up to date than I am. <laughs> well i also just read the book so yeah, that might yeah. account for it you know but uh it,
0: that was quite a night i think i was there as a matter of fact
1: yeah i was there too i mean it was it was quite a night it was uh it was quite a thing when he al forrester came came riding with him out in, in the cart you know and ted by that time it had had a couple strokes couldn't see very well and uh you know, his son, John Henry, had had the, had, had the, the website hitter.net in the final in the final thing had put everything together because he could put him in a hitter.net hat when he came out, which looked real stupid. And uh, it, it, it was just it was just quite a thing when he came out and all the players got around him. You know, you you kind of new. In, in, in a way that, that this was going to be his last hurrah, his last public hurrah. And, uh, and it certainly was, you know, the players just saying nice things to him and, and, and you, you could see the, the admiration that they all had for him. And there is a Ted Williams museum. Yeah, there, there still is. I mean, it, it, it was, it was in uh, Hernando, Florida it's. Now it's uh, at at the uh, at the ballpark where, where where the Tampa Bay Rays play. You know, it's uh, it's which is an odd place for it to be. There, there have been movements to bring it up to Boston and everything. It, it was an interesting museum in, in Hernando, Florida, when uh, Ted 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 went moved there, and part of the thing was that they would set up the the the, the museum. Um, Not too far from where he lived. To put it in
0: polite terms and terms that you can use on the air, John Henry was a rat.
1: Well, can you use rat on the air?
0: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I don't know. You can on this program.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was an interesting kid in that Ted, Ted had problems raising his own kids. Ted was wonderful. With everybody else's kids, you know? I mean, he was wonderful for the Jimmy Fund. He was wonderful, you know, going to hospitals. Uh, he, he, he just saw tons and tons of kids, and he, he would always ask him, you know, how do you hit? And let me see your swing. And he probably showed more kids how to hit just off the cuff, you know, um, than, than any ball player that ever lived. But with his own kids, he, he had a problem with the relationship of, of being a dad, you know, and and uh, I don't you know, once the kids got old enough to say no, I don't want to do this. He, Ted Ted just couldn't go along with that. And so they, they had a rocky relationship. But then when Ted got sick, and, and everything, his son, who who is now a grown guy in his in his 30s, really became close to Ted and became his major caretaker and set things up and, and uh, marketed Ted and uh, was just involved in Ted's life and, and a lot of people thought he, he was far too domineering and, and controlling and uh, and he, he was a tough guy to like John Henry because he struck he struck business deals for everything. I mean he struck a business deal to bring Ted back to the all-star game. Um, and, and people that liked Ted from afar, you know, were kind of put off by John Henry.
0: Yeah, and he, uh, he and had, uh, one of his daughters always battled constantly about what to do as far as Ted with his body and that whole freezing uh, cryonics incident. And everything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean that was a big thing when Ted died that that they, they brought out the thing that, that Ted uh, that Ted had supposedly signed this piece of paper that was that was very sketchy looking that, that he wanted his body to, to, to be frozen in cryonics and and John Henry John Henry his son had had Become a devotee of of cryonics, and uh, and when when Ted died, they 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 packed his body in ice, and they sent him off to, to Scottsdale, Arizona, and and he, he wound up in a in in a very a steel cylinder, you know, a stainless steel cylinder. Uh, I, I went out there when I was writing the book, and 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 I tell people it it looks like a like a microbrewery, you know, with these big stainless steel vats. But inside the vats, there are bodies, many of them with the, the the head cut off, which which happened to Ted, you know, that they've preserved. And they're hoping that medical marvels will be able to sometime bring these people back, you know, and uh who knows, maybe it'll work. You know, maybe Ted'll be will be around in, in another. In another five years, who knows? Yeah, maybe he'll hit 400 again. Maybe he will. Maybe he'll tell us how to hit 400.
0: But it, but it's, it's just, it's very sad. And it's just a shame that a guy with that great a magnitude uh, and what he did on the field and everything has to have his life in that way. I was very struck and also very sad by all that.
1: Well, I, I tell people, I tell people, you, you know, the there's only one other biography, where the, the 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 end is is not death, you know, and that that's the Bible. There, there's the Bible and, and the story of Ted Williams, you know, he dies, but but maybe he's not dead, you know. Everybody else is dead at the end, <laughs> uh, so I I don't know. It's it it it, it was it was very. It wasn't a nice thing when it happened, you know. It was a little repulsive sounding, but it, as the years have gone by, I mean, it's, it's twenty years now since this happened, almost. That it, 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 it's almost kind of funky that 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 there's still you can talk about Ted. You, instead of going to, instead of going to sit next to a monument, you know, you can say, well, maybe Ted'll be back in five years, you know.
0: In in wrapping up, what is your fondest and strongest memory you'll always have of Ted Williams?
1: Well, there was a there, there, there was a moment in spring training, Winter Haven, Florida. My son was 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 really young, and uh, and, and we we went we went to a steakhouse, and uh, it was one of those all you can eat salad bars. And I went up to the salad bar with my son. And Ted was sitting there with three other guys. I really didn't know Ted at that time at all. I, I never really knew him well. But uh, one of the guys was a guy from Detroit I knew. And, and uh, Joe Falls, a sports writer. And he said, hey, Lee, how are you? And so I went and said, hi, Ted. Uh, hi, Joe. And, and, and everybody said to Ted, to "Point to my son, look at that kid. Look at that kid. He's going to be a great hitter. And Ted said, I don't care about that. That's a great-looking kid. That's a... And he boomed it out <laughs> the whole audience. And, and the whole restaurant heard it. And and Ted had been kind of my idol when I was a kid. And to have my idol saying that my son was a good-looking kid and all these people staring and everything, I, it, it still thrills me to this day.
0: Now, there's a there's a bit in there where you talk to Ted on his 80th birthday and you're filming an interview and Ted speaks to you about remuneration. Did he ever, did, did, uh, Ted Turner ever pay him any money for that?
1: Oh no, I'm sure they didn't. No. I'm sure they didn't, you know, and it was just kind of funny that, that we got, uh, it's, you know, it's the one TV interview I ever did for for CNN. And Ted said, uh, I enjoyed doing it, but, uh, I could use a little something to put in my pocket, you know, a little bit of remuneration, some spending cash. He said, who's your boss? And I said, I don't know. I said, I guess it's Ted Turner. And he said, well, you tell Ted Turner that Teddy Ballgame could use a little remuneration. And uh, <laughs> he was just funny talking about it. And I said, well, we could give you a hat. And he said, you know where you could stick that hat? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, listen uh i always enjoy talking with you and uh it's it's a great book people i'm sure can still get it uh it's a marvelous uh story very well written and uh one of these days we're going to talk about another great hitter that you wrote a book about i'm sure people have heard of some guy named babe ruth um in the yeah, not too was, distant future
1: he was pretty good himself he was very good uh yeah uh-huh. Yeah, he wouldn't have been here either. Sure, we can talk about that. We can talk about anything you want, Kent. <laughs> Listen,
0: Lee, I appreciate your taking time out again. Um, as I said, it's always great to talk to you. You're a you're a great human being, a great sports writer. And uh, one of these days we're gonna sit down and meet in person, I hope. Maybe uh maybe during the 2022 year.
1: Hopefully we'll get this COVID stuff out of the way and we'll have a big party.
0: I hope so. If we do, we'll make sure there's a picture of Ted Williams on the mantle.
1: All right. Thank you, Ken.
0: (laughs) Lee, thank you so very, very much for doing this again. And um, have a good year. Same to you. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.